Okay, let's read the text of Psalm 48. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind you break you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Selah. We thought of your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Now, just a moment. I'm going to ask you some things about that psalm or your oppressions of our original reading of it there. And I hope that you've had opportunity to read it several times. But uh, remember Psalm 42 started book 2 of the psalm. Psalm 42 and 43 were more of a lament. Probably one psalm. Uh, That was the only class where we covered two psalms together, remember? Because uh, that common phrase, Why are you in despair, O my soul? In Psalm 45... We are Psalm 44, a national lament. Uh, we are all day as sheep being led to the slaughter. And it seemed hopeless and helpless. But in Psalm 45, the groom is being married. And the groom ultimately uh, pictures the king. And the king uh, foreshadows a great ruler to come. And Psalm 46 and 48 talk about the city in which God dwells. The city which Psalm 47, God told us, He's King of all the earth. But He dwells in a special way in this city of Jerusalem in 46 and 48. Now, that's just kind of a where we've been recently kind of thing. What strikes you at first reading on Psalm 48? What are some ideas that you think of in connection with this? Especially the end, like um, uh, verses 12 and 13. You know, it, it pictures you walking through the city and like seeing the, the great buildings and, and so forth. And then, and then the next verse, you know, takes you back to God, and it's almost like 
as you're going through the city and you see these great things, you just see God here and there and there. It's yes. not as if you're impressed with the city, you're impressed with God. Okay. That's that's pretty good summary. Uh, let's tie a few things in with that. This phrase, uh, the city, particular reference to the city is made in verse 1, verse 8. I believe the word city may be used, yes, it's twice in verse 8. So the word city is used in verse 1 and twice in verse 8. You see the term Mount Zion used in verse 2, in verse 11. The term Zion is used in verse 12. You see a reference to the temple in verse 9. So all of these things that we associate with the city of Jerusalem. And this psalm is called a Zion psalm as a title of it because it deals with the city a great deal. But ultimately, the city is not the most important thing about the city. The most important thing is God. Before you see a mention of the city and after you see a mention of the city... You see God. You see in the first line of verse 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And as Christy pointed out to me, she was asking me about that because this is still within that section where Yahweh is not mentioned as often. But you see His name mentioned several times in this psalm. Great is the Lord, all capitals, greatly to be praised. So it begins with praise of the Lord. And even after describing the tour of the city, after the person is given the grand tour, he says, such is God. Our God is forever and ever. Ultimately, the thing about this city, its impressiveness is... Its impressiveness is the God who dwells there. That is the key to all of it. And uh, that uh, is what we want to keep in our minds. And sometimes in studying for these various psalms, uh, I run across all kinds of good ideas. And one of those difficult things is to determine in what order to present them. I know they're good ideas. I know I need to say them. But in which order? What's fundamental to everything else? What do you build on? And uh, But uh, I think what John said is important. And we may pass over some of the references that deal with this. But when he said, the city is impressive, but not all that impressive. You know, keep that in mind as well when we go throughout it. But great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. You remember how Psalm 47 ended? Psalm 47 talked about God as King of all the earth and you find the princes of the people had assembled as the people of the God of Abraham. They've assembled. Well, where have they assembled? Apparently in the city of our God. They have come here to worship. They have come here to praise. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of 
our God. By the way, you encounter that kind of description of Zion being the city the city of God. You encounter it not only in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 46 verse 4, like Psalm 87 in verse 3, but remember when Jesus was warning about oaths in Matthew 5 verse 35, He said, Do not swear by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. That expression is used not just in the Old Testament, it's used in the New Testament as well. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. His holy mountain. Temples were generally built in mountains in the ancient world. And uh, often uh, in a city, the, uh, the highest building was its temple. And the Bible tells us that uh, His holy mountain, that type of expression was used in 2.6, in 3.4, in 15.1, who may dwell on His holy mountain. But... Uh, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation. Beautiful in elevation. Looked up the word beautiful. It's only used 43 times in the Old Testament. Which book would you suppose mentions the word beautiful most frequently? Song of Solomon. Fourteen times, yes. Song of Solomon. Uh, Fourteen times the word beautiful is used. But this, this city is described as beautiful. The joy of the whole earth. The joy of the whole earth. Look at Psalm 50 verse 2. Psalm 50 verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. Zion, the perfection of beauty. Lamentations 2 verse 15. Now, Lamentations is talking about the fall of the city, but it says all who pass along the way, this is 2.15, clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss, they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth. The writer of Lamentations is astonished that these things could have been said about this city, which is now in ruins. But look at how it's described. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king. And notice he mentions in Mount Zion in the far north. Now even if you're in the land of Israel, if you're in the land of Israel, is Zion in the north? It's not in the north. Do any of you have in your translations an alternate reading. John was John was ready for that. He was, he was it's kind of like the prayer. We talked about these passages the other day with some of you. The prayers answered before 
uh, finish asking John his hand up before the question was over. And uh, what is it? So the NIV says, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion. And I, I, I saw a footnote on that. It said Zaphon was one of the the uh, the mountains in in Canaan that was revered. Okay, exactly. Um, Zaphon is the word that is translated north in the New American Standard. Zaphon would be a transliteration of the term. Okay. Now let me tell you the significance of this. Do you remember? Do you remember? having to read things in high school probably if you're like me maybe some of you enjoyed it uh, but about the Roman um, Roman gods and the, and the Greek gods and where did the Roman gods dwell? You remember? Mount Olympus Zaphon was to the Canaanites what Olympus was in those times Zaphon is the same kind of thing. This was the dwelling place of their gods. The Canaanites believed this is where their gods met in Mount Zaphon. Uh, Also, even in Isaiah 14 verse 3, which is talking about the king of Babylon, you see this term is used. Isaiah 14 verse 3. It's 14 verse 13, yes. What did I say? 14 verse 3. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. In the recesses of Zaphon. Now, what does all this have to do with us? The fact that this was the Canaanites kind of sacred mountain. Uh, he says here, if, if we translate, transliterated the word Zaphon in Mount Zion, basically Zaphon is Zaphon. But this is what Peter Craigie said. The psalmist affirms that the aspirations of all people for a place where God's presence could be experienced is fulfilled not in Zaphon, but in Zion. That this is all that this place symbolized to the Canaanites. Mount Zion was that and more. It was the dwelling place of God. And this is a way. This is a way, and there's something else in this psalm that we'll see, for God to say, too, that if you worship Baal or you worship other gods like this, no, your God is not the real God. The Lord is the real God, and Mount Zion is the real place of God's presence. And he says in verse 3, God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. God is a stronghold. God is the defense of the city. Ultimately, the protection of this city was not in any of the structures that are mentioned in the text, especially 12 and 13, but ultimately it's in God. God is their defense. 
God is their source of strength. Remember Psalm 127, 1 and 2, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's the Lord who does this. Now, Is, is is that the way you felt, Bob and Susie, when you went to Israel? That's the joy of the whole earth, beautiful in valley elevation. Did you feel that way about well, I had this? a physical manifestation. My ears popped going up the mountain. Okay. <laughs> if that's something like what you're talking about, then I can... Okay. <laughs> you did experience some physical sensation. Um, obviously, you know, uh, um, if 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 it was if it was to happen there, it couldn't happen um, any mountain in America. Uh, but but um, this is what one writer said. Uh, Robert Alter said, from the standpoint of the great cities of the ancient Near East, Jerusalem was a small backwater capital Um, there's a psalm later in Psalm 137 when the people are being captured and taken to Babylon the Babylonians taunt the people and they say sing us one of the songs of Zion now does that mean one of the songs like this I don't know it may have been but it's obviously in the context they're making fun of them, they're taunting them, they're making sport of them. Say, hey, yeah, tell us about how great your city is, how strong your city is, uh, and how beautiful your city is. Um, and of course, there's a lot of power in all of that, and we'll see more about that, Lord willing, when we get there. But, but, but what I'm trying to stress right now is the very thought that some of them would have extolled Jerusalem like this to people outside the nation would have seemed foolish. But would it have seemed foolish to a person whose deepest longing and desire was God? Would that have seemed foolish? Or would all of these things take on a different meaning to the eyes of faith? I want to give you a secular illustration. I'm not trying to compare this. <clears throat> but this was what I came across in my mind to try to help get the idea. Um, some people, you know, all their world is things like sports and entertainment and um, this was a quotation from late 80s early 90s when Jerry Jones bought the Dallas Cowboys and he was so excited about that he was being interviewed and he was being talked to about this and he was talking about how this is just a magical thing this is just a special thing and that he wants to know everything about this stadium. He wants to know how the popcorn works in the popcorn machine. Now, what would be so special about that? He would consider that special because he thinks what happens there in the games that are played are bigger than life. Oh, that we would all see 
worship that way. That 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 is what's real. That it's not Cowboy Stadium. That it's the Lord. That's sometimes the the mountains we've set up. But that it's the Lord who's worthy of praise. And that we're lost in wondering Him, not because the person making announcements is so smooth, or the prayer is so eloquent, or um, maybe not even the preacher being that uh, great at explaining, but because of the God that's worshipped there. Because of the God that's worshipped there. But it had an impact on some people who came to this city. If you look in verse 4, Lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed together. They saw it and they were amazed. Here are these kings gathering together. By the way, this word assembled, it's used in in, uh, Joshua 11 verse 5. Joshua 11 verse 5 is talking to the kings of northern Canaan. And it says in Joshua 11 verse 5, "All All these kings having agreed to meet came and encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. So it refers to kings assembling together, gathering together to fight against God's city in Psalm Psalm 48 verse 4. It just refers to them fighting against Israel in Joshua 11 and verse 5. It is also, the word is also used, I believe in Psalm 2 and verse 2, uh, where the king Kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Look at Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. In verse 6, the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. They raised, He raised His voice. The earth melted. The point in these passages is the nations gathering together against Jerusalem and the kings and the most powerful men gathering together against Jerusalem. They're all assembling together. But when they come to Jerusalem to conquer it, they saw it. They were amazed. They were terrified. And they fled. Julius Caesar said, I came, I saw, I conquered. One writer said these people could say, we came, we saw, we fled. (laughs) It's not as heroic, but, but that's what happens. They're all marching together and they're assembling together and they saw it and they're amazed and they're terrified and they fled. And panic seized them as of a woman in labor in childbirth. Now I had down uh, at least eight passages in the Bible that uses women in childbirth as kind of the ultimate illustration of anguish and pain coming on someone. And um, so they were just filled with panic. They were filled with anguish as of a woman um, who is in the pain of childbirth. 
the east wind is pictured and coming and breaking into the ships of Tarshish. Now, let's talk about this just a moment. Um, the ships of Tarshish. Where do you encounter those ships in Scripture? There's, pro- there's an example I'm expecting you to mention first. Yeah, Jonah is the first one we think of. And he finds a ship going to Tarshish and he pays the fare. Um, but um, they're mentioned quite a few times. Solomon uh, is said to have ships going to and from Tarshish or ships of Tarshish that are traveling, bringing goods and, and carrying out goods. Um one of the most interesting, though, is Ezekiel 27, when Ezekiel 27 is talking about the fall of Tyre, and uh, it uses this kind of language there, uh, Ezekiel 27, verses 26, 25 and 26, the Bible says, the ships of Tarshish were the carriers for your merchandise, and you were filled, and you were very glorious in the heart of the sea. Your rowers have brought you into great waters. The east wind has broken you in the heart of the sea. Now, why? I wanted to also make a connection with this with uh, Zaphon. Remember Baal, who was the chief god at Zaphon, that Baal is believed to be the god of the storm. But notice who it is who uses the strong east wind to break up the ships of Tarshish. It's the Lord who uses the wind. The Lord demonstrates His power and His control over all nature. He can do what the followers of Baal claim for Him. And in verse 8, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Now, so the kings come, the kings fight, the kings gather themselves together and they are running away in dismay. The ships are broken. Um, and, and some have wondered why a ship is mentioned in connection with a land battle anyway. Uh, but but listen to this. Well, the NIV just says, uh, you destroyed them like ships of Tarshish. Okay, you destroyed them like ships of Tarshish. You remember too that Jehoshaphat tried to start a navy and God broke his ships, First Kings twenty two forty eight, and it's also in Second Chronicles 20. Oh, looking at verses 4 and 8, 4 through 8, look at that right here, and I want to read Psalm um, 46, 4 through 7 again. I know I read them a moment ago. I want to read them again. And I want to ask you if you can understand how some people got the idea that Jerusalem would never fall. In 46, verses 4 through 7, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in her midst. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. And I don't know what all your translations have for moved there. Um, but she will not be moved. 
God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now, could you understand how someone can take 48 verses 4 through 8? How someone can take 46, 4 through 7 and conclude Jerusalem would never fall? I mean, can you... That's not a completely illogical conclusion, is it? And you remember in Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15, Jeremiah preached that God is going to destroy this temple. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to destroy the city. He's going to make this house like Shiloh. And some said, we're going to put you to death. You, you, You know, well... I'm combining Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 7, we see the sermon. Jeremiah 26 may show the response to the sermon. It may may be that Jeremiah preached the same kind of sermon more than once. But Jeremiah 7, the sermon, Jeremiah 26, the response, they said, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. To them, it was heresy that somebody at Jerusalem could be destroyed. Now, Again, I understand how they could come to that conclusion, but also that was a, a pretty comfortable conclusion to come to, was it? You know, that, that Jerusalem never going to be destroyed. And should we be surprised, and this is a little tangent here, that promises about the security of the believer are made in strong terms, but it may be they're conditional and not unconditional. I mean, isn't that a logical conclusion to make from the fact that these promises made to Jerusalem are conditional and not unconditional? And maybe we'll have time for that too at the end a little bit more. Any questions or comments right here that you have? Craig, so you're him first. There was something about the beginning of verse 8, as we have heard, so have we seen, that it made me think of what the, the Queen of Sheba had said when she encountered Solomon. That I had heard of your wisdom, but now I've seen it with my own eyes, even after I told you. That's right. Not only have they heard about God's power, they have seen vivid illustrations of it in their experience. And and so I think that's the kind of thing you're saying. That the, the Queen of Sheba I heard and the half was not told me. And um and so yes, I think that it is a good point. Gary? So are you seeing four through eight as just kind of a symbolic thing or does it refer to something as well? I I think it is hard to pin it down to one event. <laughs> Uh, but I do think the kind of thing that happened in 701 B.C. when the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem would have been the very kind of thing uh, that this was built on. I, I think, you know, it says a Psalm of David. I, I try to t- I take those titles seriously. Uh, but, you know, had they experienced anything up to their point, up to their that in their history. I think the very fact that we quote uh, some of the words from Joshua 11 verse 5, the conquest of Canaan when all the kings gathered together was that kind of thing. But at the same time, I am telling you Gary, 
right now I'm, I'm holding back on you a little bit because I, I, I want to deal with that that's kind of the order of presentation there's, there's more to, there's more to come to that answer okay okay and uh, so <laughs> okay anybody else now you made reference to a song of David oh it is, I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry, I get so used to saying that. I'm so used to saying that. Forgive me, I, I did not mean it was a psalm of David. If anybody listens to that, thank you for saying that. I mean, sometimes in preaching through the New Testament, I have had, as Paul writes, and then quote First Peter. So I do that kind of thing sometimes. So I do apologize. But it's a psalm of the sons of Korah. But, um, but, as they contemplate God's defenses of the city in times past, in other events, they said in verse in verse 9, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. So this is the only passage that mentions the temple here. Mount Zion is mentioned... Um, it, the temple's mentioned, but it says, We have thought of your loving kindnesses, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. The loving kindness is the main word to describe God's character and God's covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, it is usually transla- it's translated loving kindness or steadfast love or uh, well, it's translated in a variety of ways, but it's a word used in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, full of loving kindness, abounding in loving kindness. And God's righteousness uh, is also a very important quality in all the uh, Old Testament in all of scripture it is a word that describes the character of God it is a word that describes um, it sometimes is, is used kind of the, the signal of victory but your right hand is full of righteousness and, and these words righteousness and justice they often describe the response and the word justice is actually the word that's translated uh, judgment in verse 11 in the New American Standard but righteousness and justice are the primary responsibilities of a king like in Psalm 72 in verses 1 through 4 a king's responsibility is to do justice and righteousness and God as the greatest of kings he does justice and he does righteousness. David is said to do justice and righteousness in 2 Samuel 5.18. And Solomon in 1 Kings 10 in verse 9 is said to do justice and do righteousness. And um, But the people are at the temple and they are contemplating how God's defense of them and defense of the city is a reflection of God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness to His covenant, faithfulness to His people. It's a demonstration of His righteousness, of His character, uh, that He is righteous, He's a, He is holy, uh, and that He does right by His people. It is a demonstration of God's justice, that He will not let wickedness prevail. I think all of the all these things the people are contemplating in the temple as they ponder the deliverance that God has brought. And he says, 
in verse 12, as John had mentioned earlier, just kind of the tour of the city, walk around her, go around her and count her towers. You know, and again, let me use an illustration. You've been places before that are not that impressive, but you're awed because of the history of the place, because of what happened in the place. Um, and this is the situation here. However impressive Zion may have seemed to some or not to others, what's, what's powerful about the city is the city's history and its deliverances. Walk around Zion and go around her and count her towers and consider her ramparts and go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. I, I don't know exactly how to how this helps us much uh, in understanding this psalm, but the word in verse 12, count, in the New American Standard, and the word in verse 13, for tell, are from the same Hebrew word. So they're counting... And they're recounting the story. They're retelling the story. They're going to tell it to the next generations. Not so much as just about how the buildings looked and how everything was. But the God that defended the city. And after talking about Zion in the last couple of verses, he mentions Mount Zion in verse 11. He mentions Zion in verse 12. He mentioned the temple in verse 9. He talked about all the features of the city. But yet, as John mentioned earlier, he closes by saying, For such is God. Not such is the temple. Such is the city. But such is God. Our God forever and ever, He will guide us until death. The God who protected the city and kings came and they trembled and they were terrified. This God is our protection until death do us part. And in light of all of Scripture, uh, we would say not even that will separate us from the love of God. Now, I'm sure we could have dealt with some things better, but do you all have a question about that, Gary? Make a comment, this is not a big thing, but count and tell are the same word in Portuguese. There's a connection between those Okay. 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 So it's not just true in this one language, right. it's true right. in, in other languages. I have no idea of any others. Okay, okay. Then there are a couple of songs that talk about the right, uh, righteousness and justice being the foundation of God's throne. Yes, yeah, in the in the in the realm of the 90s when it talks about many of the psalms that deal with God as king 95 through 99 um I'll tell you a passage that's coming to my mind. Let me see if it's um right uh righteousness and justice uh are the foundation of his throne. Um yes, it's Psalm 99 uh, verse three and four. Let them praise your great and holy, your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of their king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in 
Jacob. Justice and righteousness. That was 99 uh, verses 3 and 4. So yes, those qualities of God are often lumped together in the Old Testament. Justice and righteousness. Now, there is a lot to do to trace this thought throughout Scripture and a lot that can be said. I want us to try to to see how we can point Psalm 48, how we can see Jesus in the midst of this psalm. Now, Christy, you were mentioning to me a couple of ideas at at, at home, and um, what what was it that you said? We're talking about Psalm 48 and Jesus. Um, I noticed in verse 1, um, he is greatly praised, he is Lord, and this is in the city of God, in his holy mountain, along with verses 9 through 11, um, thinking on his loving kindness in the temple, and the name, his name, I thought, first of all, with the, his birth in Simeon and Anna, there in the temple, Okay. and also the triumphal entry. Um, specifically, I was looking at Mark 11, um, where he is praised, um, especially where you've got the daughters of Judah are rejoicing. Um, yes, and you, you see the triumphal entry. Yes. What passage are you referring to there then? I use Mark 11. Okay, Mark, Mark 11, 1 to 11, and then the is Luke 2. 25 through 38. And remember um, the statement here about the description about um, in verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad, let the daughters of Judah rejoice. And that sounds a lot like Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 that we referenced a couple of weeks ago where that kind of language about the triumphal entry uh, that's a passage quoted about the triumphal entry and applied to Jesus. Okay, so those are a couple. Of, those are a couple of good thoughts. Now, one more. okay, go ahead. That's right. You did have another one. Go ahead. Um, in verse eight, as we have heard, so we have seen. Thought about First John one. Um, okay. In verse three, what we have seen and heard, we are going to proclaim to you. Um, okay. It's not the idea you were telling me, though. I know, but I you, you backed <laughs> off on that one. Okay, I was. She was talking about. Well, let's just say this way: somebody was talking about, uh, and it may not may be ashamed of the point now. But when the disciples come out of the temple and they say, "What beautiful stones! What wonderful stones! What wonderful building!" and then Jesus talks about the destruction of the city. There's not going to be one stone left upon another, but they were in awe of the beauty of the temple. They were in awe of the beauty of the temple. And the, the statement by the rabbis was, if you have not seen Herod's temple, you've not seen beauty. And they they would have proclaimed that that was the joy of the whole earth. Um, but Jesus said it's going to be destroyed. Now, I don't know if this is the best order in which to present this. But 
think about what Psalm 48 says. Psalm 48, and we've talked about the fact it's not that Jerusalem itself is so impressive necessarily, or, but it is associated with God's presence. This, look at John 4 and the discussion that Jesus has here. In John 4, beginning with verse 19, the Samaritan woman says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and that's talking about Mount Gerizim was their place of worship. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship, worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ, when, he, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What I am trying to say is all that was meant by the city, by his holy mountain, and by the temple, all these places were special because of the presence of of God. And God's presence is shown in Christ. God's presence is going to be in Him in a special way. Now, that's not the first time we see it in John. In John 1, in verse 14, the Bible says there, uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's presence is shown in Jesus. And we beheld His glory. In John 2, right after Jesus cleanses the temple in the Gospel of John. After that, in John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. They said, we've been building this temple 46 years. You're going to raise it up in three days? He was speaking of the temple of His body. Really, all that was represented by city, mountain, and temple, all of this is going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. In the person of Christ. Again, any list of prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled is too short if it doesn't include the whole Old Testament. Now, when you think about that, These next points, I think, will be striking to you. Psalm 48, verse 4. The kings assembled themselves. Kings assembled themselves. Now, 
that word for assembled themselves in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used quite a few times in the New Testament, but let me tell you one, it's pretty pretty relevant to our discussion. Look at Acts 4. Acts 4. As the apostles are being persecuted for preaching Jesus. In Acts 4, in verse 26 and 27, the kings of the earth took their stand. This is a quote from Psalm 2. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against His holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Kings are going to assemble themselves together. You have one king. King, Herod, or one that were the title of king, Herod, and then you have a Roman governor, Pilate. You have these powerful people gathering themselves, assembling themselves against Jesus. And the point is, the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the kings assembling together against Jerusalem is used for these kings and powerful people assembling themselves against Jesus. Also, Psalm uh, 48 and verse 4, they saw it. They saw it. Then they were amazed. They were amazed. Now, the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used in the Greek New Testament. And we'll make this visible to people. It was used in the Greek New Testament. Sometimes when they ask Jesus questions. In Matthew 22, verse 22. In Mark 12, and verse 17. Luke 20 verse 26 that is all the same context same context in each of the synoptics but this is when they come to Jesus with the question is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not and Jesus says give me a Daenerys and and they gave him one he says whose image or likeness is on this and he says you render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar to God what belongs to God and this word is used to describe the response of his enemy to his answer. But, particularly, think about these kings who assembled themselves. Pilate and Herod. The Bible tells us that when Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate questions him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, nothing. Pilate is amazed. Matthew 27, 14. Mark 15, verse 5. These kings assembled themselves together, but they're amazed. When word comes back that Jesus is dead already, Pilate, in verse 44 of Mark 15, is amazed. He's amazed. The kings are assembling themselves, and the kings are amazed. Now, granted, this next reference is not to one of the kings. But in Luke 24, 
in verse 11, when the women come back with the news that Jesus has been raised, and when Jesus actually appears before them, the disciples are amazed. But, but, but my argument is from the less to the greater. If the disciples were amazed at His resurrection, how much more the kings and the rulers of the world. They're terrified. They're amazed. And in 48.6, the New American Standard had the word Panic. And this word for panic, I believe it's only used like five times in the New Testament. But one of those five times is in Mark 16.8. When the women hear the news of the resurrected Jesus and they're told this by the angels, I think the New American Standard translates, they were terrified. Now again, if this is the response of His friends, What's the response of his enemies? If even those who are loyal to him are terrified. The kings of the earth, the most powerful men, are assembling themselves. They're amazed. They panic at his appearance. Now, you may think, I hope you think those points are valid. I think those are pretty strong. This next one, I admit, is a little shaky, okay? <laughs> the word used for an east wind in 48 verse 7 in the, in the Septuagint that is the word is used violent and I believe that word I think it's just used one time in the New Testament all the disciples were gathered together and there was a violent rushing wind. And it filled all, and all were filled with the Spirit and began to speak. But isn't it true that one of the ways that God broke the back of the wicked is by sending that violent wind fill the apostles to speak? Think about it. You may not agree with that. But in 48.11, the two terms used here, be glad and rejoice, the terms used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament are both used in Acts 2.26 to talk about, it's a quote from Psalm 16, but to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Be glad and rejoice. So what I'm saying this psalm does find its fulfillment in Jesus. Do you have any more thoughts right there about that? Because there is something else I want to touch upon. Anything? Okay. This will go back to to Gary's question. Um, I think... I remember it right. You basically look at what the point of reference was or when it happened or fulfilled. I think we can too see some of that same language is picked up elsewhere. For example, 
when these kings are pictured, the kings in Psalm 48 are pictured as coming together. They're coming together and fighting against Jerusalem. That word that's used in the Greek translation is used in these passages in the New Testament. Revelation 16, verse 14, verse 16, 19, verse 17, and 19, and 20, verse 8. And all of these describe a situation like Psalm 48. They describe a situation where the kings of the earth are gathering together against the forces of God and against the people of God. Revelation 16 is in the context of the pouring out of the bowls of wrath and it deals with the battle of Armageddon. Uh, In Revelation 19, uh, they are coming together to fight the one who is on the white horse um, and uh, they gather together to fight against him. And he says, I saw the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse. And uh, the rest were killed with the sword which came out of his mouth. Um, and in, in, Psalm, in Revelation 20, When thousand years were completed, Revelation 20 verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together. The number of them is like the sand on the seashore and they come up on the broad plain of the earth and they surround the camps of the city, the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, I know I read that quickly if you all have not studied these passages. The more you get to look at these passages and contemplate Psalm 48, the more I think you'll appreciate it. So you see a need to kind of put this off till later. And I would say in a certain way, Psalm 48... finds fulfillment in a literal way, historical way, in events like the conquest of Canaan, which we've mentioned, where all the kings of the nations bind together against God's people, against the conquest of Canaan, and uh, in the defeat of Sennacherib, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, better said than spelled, but I hope I spelled it right, Second Kings 18 and 19 and Isaiah 36 and 37. It finds a fulfillment in them. It finds a fulfillment in the events about the Messiah. It finds a fulfillment there as the kings of the earth assemble themselves and they gather themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. And they are amazed at Him and they are stunned at Him. And it continues to find fulfillment in the conflicts 
of the world. Now let me tell you something that I've been playing with a while and I believed a while, but I haven't said this out loud too many times. Because I don't know the best way to phrase it. But I want to tell you, I am becoming more and more, more and more I'm realizing that we may have made a mistake in teaching Revelation in saying to refute premillennialism that all these things must shortly come to pass. Not denying those passages are there. Not denying they still have impact if someone takes everything after chapter 3 and just applies it to 2,000 years in the future. I think Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. And it continues to be fulfilled in our world. We see the same kind of thing going on time after time as the kings of the earth gather together against the Lord and His anointed. It may not be a literal battle that we can, but it is there. I mean, you look at Revelation 13 that no one can buy or sell if they have the mark of the beast. What happens to some people who speak out against this, particularly if you're in Hollywood, if you spoke out about homosexuality being wrong? You think you're going to be used in a lot of films? You're, it's over. It's over. And people losing all ability to trade if they don't join in. If they don't join in something that everybody knows is wrong. <laughs> All of a sudden we can't tell what a woman is anymore. But on the same hand, we don't know what a woman is. We celebrate somebody as the first woman to do it. No. You can't do them both. Because in one case you're objectively defining that. In another case you're saying the, the, the definition is totally subjective. So what I'm saying, I'm not not coming out as premillennialist. I want to be, be clear about that. I'm not doing that, but I am saying, in refuting that, we may have emphasized that these things must shortly come to pass so much that we have denied the booking application to our day. And and, and I have heard a few people that have done that. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. That's what I'm trying to avoid with what I've said. Anything I can confuse you on further that you would like to ask me? Amen. So, what's that? Amen. Okay, well, thank you. And um, I, 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 we would say every other New Testament book's relevant, and all of a sudden, Revelation, Revelation doesn't. You know, it doesn't have any relevance. That's not kind of a logical appearance. We do have a song. And um, John, I suppose you um, substitute I'll, song I'll, leader. I will substitute. If uh, if y'all will start passing this, just pass this down, guys. And uh, and uh, but before we'll have before we have a song, uh, we'll have um, Bob lead us in a prayer. If you, if you would. <coughs> I get it. Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, we give you uh, thanks and we honor you and we we extol you and we lift you up, Father. 
Uh, we're so thankful for these words that you've given us uh, that uh, when when we read them, Father, we we draw near to you and and we better understand your your will for us and your greatness and uh, we just marvel, Father, at the wisdom you possess and how you convey it. And God, it is truly you who makes all things of value and make all things great. Oh, Father, uh, every everything that you've made is subject to you. And one of these days, all of those things will be gone. But you will still be there. And it is our desire, Father, to be with you. Help us understand every day better uh, your will for us, that we might uh, tell others who do not know you, nor your greatness, nor your mercy and loving kindness, that we might tell them about the loving God we serve. Help us do that, Father. Thank you for our study tonight. It's in Christ we pray. As John is coming up here to get a hold of that song, um, I, this is one quote I wanted to share. I, Lord willing, next week I will not be here. We're going to be in the Northeast studying uh, the Psalms. So uh, Lord, Gary will be there. I'll be there. But so we'll be meeting next week. But this is a quote that I wanted to share. I thought was interesting. We said before that Jerusalem to some capitals of the world would seem small and insignificant. And, and John Golden Gay in his commentary made a point that God often chooses the weak and lowly to confound the wise, the language of 1 Corinthians 1. So it wouldn't, shouldn't surprise us that maybe the city that's called the joy of the whole earth and extolled in this way is not as impressive looking outwardly as some others. Did you get one? Uh, no, I didn't. So trouble 
tarshish break. The chips of tarshish break. And there must be a song in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I know that thing right now. <laughs> Anybody know the, the tune to Jesus, the very thought? <laughs> okay, let's give it a whirl. Sorry for that. You know, that that was that's a good suggestion. <laughs> I just saw that while we were in the second song. But yeah, it's CM, whatever that is. Sure. Yeah. Cool. So now we gotta look up Jesus the Ring Funny and see what the words are. That's <laughs> now now I recognized I recognize when you start the first line. <laughs> I was 